This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center of Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Every person is composed of a series of genes that determine everything from the color of our hair and eyes to how our bodies respond to and metabolize medications and our susceptibility to cancer and other diseases. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini series of Mayo Clinic talks to the incredible field of genes and your health. We'll discuss topics in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients. Topics will include the microbiome, cancer genetics, artificial intelligence, pharmacogenomics, direct-to-consumer testing, the ethical principles of genetic testing, and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today's topic is preparing your practice for the increased use of genomics. We are joined by three guests today from across the Mayo Clinic enterprise. First, Jenny Anderson, who has a Master's of Science in Genetic Counseling. She is a licensed certified genetic counselor in the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Clinically, she works in the Predictive Genomics Clinic with generally healthy population of patients who are undergoing genetic counseling and testing for proactively identifying genes that are of concern or also for identifying genes that are important for preventive medicine issues. From a research standpoint, she works with returning results for large-scale sequencing studies at Mayo in Rochester and across the enterprise, what is known as the tapestry study. Our second guest today is Dr. Megan Elise, who's an associate professor of biomedical ethics with a joint appointment in OBGYN in the Women's Cancer Center who works at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville campus. Her research focuses on the clinical translation of genetic technologies in women's health and health disparities. And last but not least is Dr. Radhika Damija. She is a consultant in the Enterprise Department of Clinical Genomics at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona and practice chair. She has a joint appointment in neurology. Additionally, she spends time at the Barrows Neurologic Institute at the Phoenix Children's Hospital. Her interests include neurocutaneous disorder, and she serves as a director of the Neurofibromatosis Clinic in Phoenix, which is a joint collaboration between Mayo, Arizona campus and the Phoenix Children's Hospital. Welcome guests. So geez, taking on the topic of preparing your practice for increased use of genomics, a small topic, very focused, which could take us about 10 minutes to talk about. This is a huge undertaking, and I'm very excited to have you all here, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy day. There is so much to discuss. I'm a primary care doctor, and it has been fascinating to watch how things have started to evolve uh, in my own practice, how important pharmacogenomics is, what happens when patients come in with a 23andMe, and just yesterday... Jenny, you'll love this. I had somebody say, I got asked to be in a tapestry study. Did they look at my chart and do I have problems with my lipids? So I'd like to start with you because you deal with generally healthy populations, both from a clinical standpoint, doing some of the genetic counseling, but also with regard to the big tapestry study. So 
what can you tell us and what can you tell clinicians about what's happening with looking at predictive genomics in healthy patients? What's happening now? What's on the horizon? And what can we tell our practitioners about what's going to happen in the future for them? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Dupress. That's a wonderful question. You know, I think there are a lot of different areas that this this large-scale genetic testing in healthy people is going to affect. And I think specifically it will affect, you know, the primary care setting and kind of more of that, that general medicine area. With the tapestry study, in case anybody isn't familiar with that, um, that is doing genomic sequencing on 100,000 different Mayo Clinic patients. And right now we're returning results for three different genetic conditions, including the BRCA1 and 2 genes related to hereditary breast and ovarian cancer. We're also returning Lynch syndrome, which is a different cancer predisposition, increases the risk for things like colorectal cancer, uterine cancer, and other types of cancer. And then we're also returning um, a genetic form of high cholesterol called familial hypercholesterolemia. And really, again, we're looking at 100,000 different Mayo Clinic patients. So it's a, a very broad and large population. Um, and we are returning these results to patients. We're making them aware of these results. And for a lot of patients, these are new results that they did not know about before. So they did not know they were at an increased risk for different cancers or for things like high cholesterol and heart disease. So I think, you know, with just how many people we're testing, primary care providers can expect to see patients that are coming back with these positive results that are having new diagnosis of things like cancer predispositions or heart conditions. It's a lot of people that were identifying with these conditions who did not know about it before. So how do we get beyond the patient who says, hey, Dr. Dupro, I'm not worried. I'm a healthy person. I'm 35 years old. I'm 40 years old. There's no history of anything in my family. I personally encourage people to get involved in research studies because we don't know what we don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So what advice would you have that you could tell providers to encourage people to think about Yes, you're, you don't think you're at risk, but mm -hmm. is there any advice we could give them to try to encourage people to get interested and to enroll in some of these studies? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say regarding that, you know, family history doesn't always show us that these genetic predispositions are present. So family histories can be wonderful tools. Um, and sometimes they can, you know, indicate to us that there could be a genetic condition present, but not always. A lot of the patients that we identify, maybe they'll have a couple diagnoses of breast cancer in the family or a little bit of high cholesterol going on, um, but they don't have those very strong family histories that we historically think about. Um, in relation to these different genetic conditions. So while family history information can be wonderful for a lot of cases, not all family histories are going to present in kind of that traditional setting. So Megan, we heard a little bit about BRCA1 and BRCA2 from Jenny and, and sort of tapestry starting to look for these genetic predispositions and even Lynch, where we start to think about uterine cancers. And I know your work really sort of focuses on looking at genetic technologies and how we look at that relative to women's health. Can you comment on what you're involved in and how that's relevant towards the average clinician and how that helps us? Absolutely. Thanks, Denise. Uh, to add to Jenny's point, we have a study right now that just wrapped up interviewing 61 Black women who have had breast or ovarian cancer or a family member with breast and ovarian cancer. And one of the primary findings from that study is that there is a cultural issue in Black families that 
sort of pushes people away from sharing personal health information with their family members and their community. So a lot of women told us that they didn't know they had a family history of breast and ovarian cancer until they were diagnosed with breast cancer. And then their mother was like, oh yeah, I had that. One of the other things to add to Jenny's point is that you may not think you have a family history, but you don't always know. And unless you've really made a concerted effort to go to all your relatives and really take detailed notes, which let's be honest, most of us have not, then you don't actually know what your family history is. So I had an, an intern this summer who was working on that study and she herself is African-American. And I said to her, based on your research this summer, what would you tell other people about whether they should get genetic testing for breast and ovarian cancer? And she said, in our society, in our culture, people die and you don't even know why. So you don't know what you don't know. And I, you know, it doesn't hurt to have this extra information. So I think that's been one of the major findings that we found in African-American and black communities that I think may also be translatable to some other communities where sharing personal information and health information is not necessarily something that everybody does. Whether we don't wanna worry our family members, whether we just think it's too private, there's lots of reasons that people might not know their health history. We obviously wanna let people not get testing if that's what they feel is best for them. But we also want to help them understand what the possible benefits, not just to themselves, but to their family members might be. So we see a lot of older women who've already had breast cancer say, I don't need bracket testing because I've already had breast cancer. So I don't need to know my own predisposition. But if you explain to them that like, if we find out that this may have been contributed to by BRC1 or 2 or another mutation, that has implications for your daughters, for your nieces, for your granddaughters. Maybe that's a reason that you might want to get testing, even though it's no longer directly relatable to you. I'm going to ask you more about the health disparities, because I think one of the criticisms I've read about in my new role as an associate chair for education has been the paucity of information about other ethnic diverse populations. You know, we know a lot. It's a little bit like learning about osteoporosis, as I did when I was younger. Much of that research came out of Rochester, Minnesota, which is a predominantly white population. So as you get into other ethnic groups, we find that some of those rules and some of those estimates of incidence and prevalence don't apply. But one of the fascinating things that I had no awareness of was the relationship of BRCA2 and prostate cancer. I did not know. And so in my female patients who don't want testing, they say, I don't have daughters. I said, but yeah, you have five sons. So maybe it's absolutely important for that reason. Megan, can you expand a little bit more about the health disparities? You already have about the cultural differences, but in your work, have you seen differences in penetrance or in other aspects of the genetics depending on ethnicity? And I mean, we could spend a ton of time talking about socioeconomic determinants and epigenetics, but that's not our purpose today because Frankly, I don't know enough about that to ask an intelligent question, but perhaps you could spend a little bit more time talking about some of the other health disparities related to uh, some of what we know about genomics. Yeah, so it's interesting because to your point, a lot of the disparities and outcomes do stem from more socioeconomic factors like access to healthcare, health insurance, these sorts of things. But we know that there are some fundamentals. So for instance, Black women are much more likely to develop triple negative breast cancer which is a particularly difficult form of breast cancer to treat. And so for that reason, we do see higher mortality rates in some of those populations. 
One of the other things to keep in mind is that a lot of these genetic tests that say that they're testing for blanket breast and ovarian cancer may actually only be testing for BRCA1 and 2. And BRCA1 and 2 is highly predictive of the early onset of breast and ovarian cancer, but there's a lot of other mutations that may be more prevalent in other populations. I know historically we focus so much on Ashkenazi Jewish populations, but a lot of these other mutations that may actually collectively be rarer and have less contribution, but there are a lot more of them, may be more effective in other ethnic populations. You know, and keep in mind, depending on how small the ethnic population is and how basically long it's been evolving, we do see what we see with the Ashkenazi Jewish population, which is sort of a concentration of certain mutations in those populations. And I think that what we call the Angelina Jolie effect, which is that everybody has heard of Angelina Jolie and heard about BRCA1 and 2. And so there's sort of a perception that that's all there is to breast and ovarian cancer genetics. And there's sort of been a lot of conversations in, say, the Black community or the Hispanic community about, is this even really relevant to us? Like, isn't this sort of a, a white person's thing? And so I think that a lot of the education that we have to do going forward is helping communities to understand that these kinds of mutations affect everybody. They may affect different populations differently, and they certainly will, but they're, the genes are in all of us, right? There's no disease. I once went to a conference on Down syndrome, and one of our speakers was from Nigeria, and he got up and he said, the most frustrating thing that I have to do with my practice is convincing my patients that Down syndrome is not a white disease, that all of these mutations can occur in all of us. Also to you know, encourage groups to understand you know, what I was talking about earlier, that the importance of sharing family history, the importance of communicating with each other about your family history, your health history, what the possible benefits of genetic testing might be. And if people say like, no, I don't want the burden of that information. I'm not interested. You know, I'm 65. If I get cancer now, so be it. But we, at least, you know, our biggest thing, especially in the ethics world, is that they have, you know, an informed decision that they're making about that. And I think for a lot of these communities who have historically not really been the focus of genomic medicine, they're not necessarily making an informed decision. And I think that's where a lot of the work is left to do. Thank you. Radhika, you have two giant hats. One is this huge hat in terms of looking at practice chair and a consultant in the enterprise department of clinical genomics in Arizona, and then really a different hat where you're looking at neurofibromatosis, joint appointment. And, you know, we've talked a lot about what I think about as adult diseases, but obviously neurofibromatosis may manifest in children and can have devastating consequences. And there's a lot that's known about the genomics of the disease. And I invite you to talk about both issues genomics and genomic conditions in children that you're familiar with. And then on the bigger stage, in a bigger picture, what, as you look at from a practice standpoint, practices in general, how do we start to get better prepared? What are the pieces that we're going to need to put in place, both small and large practices to deal with genomics? That is certainly a loaded question, and I'll try my best to answer it. So I, in my practice, I take care of patients of all ages, starting from being babies to um, 
older individuals who have genetic disorders. And you specifically mentioned neurofibromatosis because I have a passion in that disorder. And the typical presentation of neurofibromatosis actually is in childhood with just having birthmarks or cafe macules. That's the first sign of the disorder. And as the child gets older, they develop more and more clinical manifestations and the disorder becomes more obvious. So I would take this disorder to highlight that genetics really doesn't have any age bar or boundary. And most geneticists feel very comfortable talking to parents of children with genetic disorders about uh, counseling and testing. And they also at the same time feel comfortable talking to patients as adults uh, as to why genetic testing would be indicated for them. If we talk only about pediatric uh, patients, the most common, I feel like, referral group is from neurology. And we take care of patients or do evaluation for children with any form of developmental disorder, be it developmental delay, learning disability, autism spectrum, seizures that are intractable, syndromic children. So that is kind of like a big referral group we see in pediatrics. But remember, with more and more treatments and management offerings, these children are living to become adults. And so now we have this big population of adult patients with syndromic diagnosis that was made very early in life, or perhaps with modern technology even later in life. And so I think medical geneticists come into play in taking care of those patients. I sometimes introduce myself as being a primary care physician for a patient with rare genetic disorder. To give you an example from a clinic, I diagnosed a 51-year-old gentleman with Gaucher's disease at age 51, who had lifelong history of easy bruising and thrombocytopenia. And he happened to do 23andMe testing just because he was curious. And on 23andMe testing, it said, well, you may be carrier of Gaucher, and he is from Ashkenazi Jewish ethnicity. So then he came to genetics, underwent clinical genetic testing, and, and his clinical picture of a lifelong history of sort of like a diagnostic odyssey or medical mystery made sense. And Gaucher disease has treatment. It has enzyme replacement therapy. It now even has oral uh, substrate reduction therapies. So I'm going to be starting treatment on a 51-year-old with Gaucher. It almost solved his lifelong history of medical issues. So I feel like primary care physician should be aware that sometimes when medical problems involving multiple systems don't make sense and you can't put it together, it could be genetic. Rare, but it could be genetic. And once you have one patient with an extremely rare genetic disorder that you diagnose, you kind of become believers in offering more and more genetic testing and your threshold to order genetic testing lowers. And then hopefully we can help more patients. I think primary care physicians are also going to be seeing many more patients like I just described who will be diagnosing or at least getting suspicious of their diagnosis themselves and seeking genetic testing on their own because there's just so few genetics clinic or the wait time to see a geneticist is so long. And so they're seeking these direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies and sometimes coming up with suspicious results that with confirmatory testing or further testing, you know, gives them a diagnosis. So I think that's kind of a brief summary of what I practice. It's really wide, but I think genetics is becoming more mainstream and more first-line testing for, for many different indications. I think a couple of things you said are really important, which is that often the direct-to-consumer testing is really partial testing. For patients, I think, who come with that, one of the important messages is that 
that doesn't mean it's not valid, but it does require confirmation, uh, just as in your patient who had a suggestion of. I know for some of these companies that have testing, they don't test for all the alleles. And so that you might not get a full picture. And so it's often challenging to explain to a patient why they need additional testing. And Jenny, I wanna go back to you because I want you to make a comment about the critical role I think that the medical geneticist and the genetic counselor can play in really talking to the patient about the pros and cons about genetic testing and the need for confirmatory testing. Um, you know, I think it's always a challenge uh, to try to say, what are the risks and benefits? We had an earlier podcast that touched a little bit on some of the legal issues. And if you could expand maybe a little bit about, you know, that patient's a little concerned and maybe doesn't want testing or does want and wants to know what are the implications if it comes back with a abnormal test that maybe does indicate I'm at risk for some disease. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I will start by saying genetic testing is complex. It has limitations. It has a lot of things to be aware of um, and a lot of considerations for somebody to, to take into account when they're considering genetic testing. Our genetic testing has come a long way and it has improved greatly over the years, but genetic testing still is not perfect. Even our best clinical genetic tests will miss mutations, will miss certain, you know, um, complex arrangements in genes and all of that. So our technology technology is not perfect. And there are definitely limitations that all patients should be aware of when they undergo genetic testing. I think too, it, it really highlights the importance of pretest counseling um, and informed consent. So a lot of times patients are aware of all of the benefits of genetic testing um, and the pros of genetic testing, but a lot of times they're not made aware of some of those cons that can come along with it. So there definitely are things like insurance discriminations that can happen. Thinking about things, you know, like life insurance, long-term care insurance, supplemental disability, there are not protections in place currently for things like that um, in relation to genetic testing. You know, also when we're thinking about doing large-scale genomic sequencing, sometimes we can identify genetic conditions for which there's no known treatment or prevention. So patients really need to be aware that we could identify risks that you cannot, you know, maybe do something about or prevent from happening. Some of the other things, too, that come up commonly, kind of some of those limitations or things to be aware of, is how results from genetic testing can impact the whole family unit. When we think about doing genetic testing, whatever the results are can kind of have a ripple effect in families. We can find risks in somebody that can relate to their parents or their siblings or their children. And so every person thinks about genetic testing differently. Just because the person in front of you wants to do genetic testing, that does not necessarily mean that their sibling or their parent or their child also wants that information. So I think it's really important for everybody to sit down with a genetic counselor or a geneticist to really understand some of those limitations that go along with genetic testing. Megan, you mentioned a little bit about the issues associated with some of the, the cultural, and you mentioned in your study of African-American women that they often didn't know their family history. Perhaps you can speak to the issue about the feelings around the idea of testing and, and what the individuals you worked with, what they wanted to do with testing, if they got it, uh, were they sharing it with others? Was it something that they wanted to keep secret or did their fear of results even prevent them from deciding to get testing? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there is a, a factor in the what we call cascade screening, basically, in the parlance, which is that if we have an individual patient and we test them for a genetic mutation that might explain their disease, then the hope is that they talk to their family, other potentially affected family members get screening, we detect things early, we might do preventative surgeries. That's the real like nirvana of genetic screening, right? Is to try and ripple outward and really find those people before they're sick, right? Unfortunately, what we're finding is that at least in some populations, we're not cascading very well, which is to say people are either not telling their family members, family members aren't necessarily acting on those results. And so we're not getting the benefits that we might get of that kind of early detection and warning. There was a study out of Arizona called the Intercept Study. And in that study, they were testing cancer patients to find out if they had a genetic mutation that might partially explain their cancer. And if they did, they invited all the family members from that individual's family to get free genetic testing for the mutation in question. So all they had to do was call up and sort of redeem their free genetic testing, right? And they even made a little video that they put online to explain to the family members why they might want that testing. In spite of all of that, a very small percentage of family members, individuals who were enrolled in that study ever redeemed their free genetic testing. So if we can't do it under those circumstances, when you know we've made it free, we've made it educational, we've made all of these things, plus they have an affected family member, then what does that mean for our use in general practice? And what we did see in our study, especially is that there's very much a generational shift that younger members of the population were much more likely to accept testing and much more likely to encourage their family members to get testing. And that older members, sort of mothers and grandmothers, were much more resistant to getting the testing and, in fact, much more resistant to even talk about getting the testing. So we had a young woman who's a member of our advisory board for the study who wasn't eligible to participate because she was on the advisory board but she was trying to get her mother and her grandmother to participate. She knew that they had a family history. And our study was very low impact. It was just an interview on the phone. We'll send you a lovely gift basket. Oh, no, 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 that's private. I can't talk about that. I'm not, I'm not gonna talk about that to some stranger, right? So I think that there is very much a younger generation that's grown up with the 23 and me. They've grown up with these sorts of genetics. They've Grown up with Westworld and Black Mirror, right? There's a lot more openness, I think, to those kinds of technologies, where in the sort of older populations, it still seems a little bit threatening, I guess. Uh, we also did see in our population, again, in that African-American and Black population, there was a lot of skepticism towards the medical establishment more generally, and that tended to encourage them to shy away from things that they didn't see as necessary or sort of life-saving. And concerns about participation in research, uh, concerns about what would happen to their genetic sample once it was taken. So again, I think it's not that those concerns are unfounded. They absolutely are. They have a lot of precedent, unfortunately. But I think there's a lot more trust building that we need to do to help individuals understand that you know, as Jenny said, there, there can be downsides, but there can also really be upsides. And we would like those upsides to be evenly distributed because right now they're not. So Black women are the least likely to benefit from experimental treatments through participation in clinical trials. 
and that impacts their morbidity and mortality. And we'd like to see a world in which everybody has equal access to those kinds of therapies. Radhika, I was familiar with Dr. Sameter talk to us a little bit about the intercept study and, and I think what Megan had outlined. Any other comments from you about this topic about what do we do or what's your experience been with trying to get other people sort of on board with additional testing once something has been identified? You know, you sit in a position to sort of have an idea of what's going on in various aspects, adults, children. What are your thoughts? I think it depends on what disorder we're talking about. I think the discussion around family variant testing, if you're dealing with a cancer syndrome, may be a little bit different than if it was, say, a disorder for which a treatment was available or a, a severe neurologic disorder that would eventually let, lead to um, death and disability. So I feel like my practice is a little bit different than the discussion that we've had thus far, because I see more uh, severe neurological disorders, devastating disorders that may lead to disability or early death. I see disorders where there is um, enzyme replacement therapy available or substrate reduction therapy available or near perhaps even gene therapies. So I feel like for those patients, the families do want to know because they can make an, a meaningful change in the patient's outcome if they were diagnosed early, offered surveillance early, and provided management appropriately. So I'll give you, I'll, we'll, we can perhaps go back to the example of neurofibromatosis uh, since we started there. So that disorder in about half of the people, it is inherited and in half it is a new mutation or sporadic or de novo. So 50% of the time there are family members that say a parent has it. And so they're at risk of having future kids or more kids with it, or they may already have kids or undiagnosed. So I would say almost always they want all their other children tested to know who has it because in that condition they are at risk for an optic glioma or brain tumors or learning disability, ADHD, seizures and whatnot. So with that diagnosis, they're, they're actually able to get all, all those services from school, extra therapies, see neurologists periodically for surveillance and if complications happen management. So I would like to say that I think it depends on what disorder we're talking about, that family variant testing sometimes is actually very easily done. As a primary care doc, I have less experience, but I do have some. I had a situation with a patient who had a form of inherited dementia and had a discussion with family, a very open discussion, and family members decided not to be tested for the reasons that you've alluded to. There was no treatment. And they felt strongly that they were not going to benefit from the knowledge that they may develop it because there was no timetable for development. They didn't feel it would change how they live their lives. Megan, you mentioned that there are other forms of breast cancer other than BRCA1 and 2. And this was a patient with a check 2 abnormality which I had to read a lot about because I had never heard about it. I'd heard of check two inhibitors, but never check two breast cancer and strongly felt that an older, much older adult parent should be tested for it because this person also had breast cancer and turned out to be negative. But again, the trickle down effect of other inherited family members who were extremely resistant to getting any testing. And it was like, well, if mom has it, you have to be tested, you know, with the strong arm of the law. It has impacted. I mean, you know, and, and I'm not talking about exotic people coming in from all over the country. I'm talking about local population in Rochester, Minnesota, 
average people. So I think one of the reasons for having this as a topic for our podcast is that in primary care, whether you are in, located in Rochester, Minnesota, primary care, not what I call the gray building care, that this is impacting our practice. In closing, I want you each to think about, you know, if you could develop or build the practice and they will come, what are the pieces that primary care needs to be ready to address genomic issues in five years? What do we need? Besides more of everything, I, I know that. More time, <laughs> more this, more money, I know that. And so, uh, Jenny, what are the pieces do you think? I'm in the education realm, so I know we need to educate our learners. We have got to start in the medical school. And I think, uh, Radhika, your comment about starting to recognize when things don't make sense, it's not unreasonable to involve a geneticist because we have a proud clinic here for the unusual conditions, but that making an unusual diagnosis in an adult. I remember being taught that cystic fibrosis was only a disease of children. Uh-uh, 40 and 50 year old patients are being diagnosed with this every day. So Jenny, what do we need to have in primary care that's gonna equip us to be better able to deal with genomic diseases in the future? Yeah, my actual first thought was exactly what you said, is we need to increase education and even just knowledge of, of genetic testing and the availability of genetic testing. You know, we're not asking primary care providers to be experts in genetics or to order genetic testing or any of that, but just being aware that genetic testing is available and that you can refer to genetic counselors and geneticists when you have a question or when you're suspicious for something, and really just, just making them, again, aware that, that this is available and it's out there. I think that's a really good place to start with kind of that primary care setting because we're just going to continue to see genetic testing utilization increase. More people are going to get genetic testing. I really think genetic testing is, is going to become more of a general population screen over the years where everybody and anybody has access to genetic testing. So I think when they bring those results into their primary care providers, those um, individuals just need to be okay with saying, here's a little bit of information that I know about it, and I'm going to refer you out to an expert some, for some more detailed information. Megan, how about from your standpoint? What Are there things you'd like to add to what Jenny shared? Yeah, my chair always says you can have anything you want as long as it's not money, space, or staff. That part of what we need to see is, is a little bit of a shift in the index of suspicion, right? So historically, we've always gone back to these sort of, if it sounds like a horse, don't look for a zebra. Well, it turns out in genetics, there's a lot of zebras. Another population that I work with is parents and kids with XY variations. So sometimes known as Kleinfelders or XYY. And a lot of these kids have gone through years of diagnosis, misdiagnosis, not knowing what's wrong. And they finally get a genetic diagnosis. And a lot of them describe this incredible feeling of relief. Like, thank goodness there's an explanation for this. I'm not just a bad person. I'm not stupid. There is an actual background to this. And so I think that helping providers to understand that this is another resource that they have to refer to, but also that I think it's time for them to take some responsibility. So for instance, we do a lot of work on prenatal testing. And we did a study on women who felt that their prenatal genetic testing experience was not very good because the results weren't delivered very well, or they didn't really have a good concept of what they were being uh, tested for. And we submitted it to a journal and every OB journal came back and said, 
this is medical genetics problem. This is genetic counseling's problem. This is not obstetrician's problem. Well, at some point, like 60 to 75% of the population is gonna get prenatal genetic testing. So it can't be medical genetics problem and it can't be genetic counseling's problem until we clone Jenny about 99,000 times. So I think providers need to understand that this is no longer just something you refer off to a specialty. This is something that in five years will be probably a pretty integral part of your practice. And I think part of that is gonna fall you know, Jenny said medical schools, I'm going to call it professional societies, right? Professional societies are the ones that make the practice guidelines. And if, you know, the professional society of ACOG came out tomorrow and said, yes, obstetricians, genetic testing and how to accurately offer it and how to counsel based on the results is your job, then that makes a big difference, right? And that it gets on the boards, it gets on all sorts of things that all of a sudden practice moves for these more general practices, accepting that this is coming and really preparing for it as opposed to continually trying to say, push it off, just train more genetic counselors, pay them a living wage, everything will be fine. I'm serious about the living wage though, even though that counts as money. <laughs> right, I get you. Radhika, your comments. Yeah, I would agree with everything that has been said. And I would like to add that when we're teaching our residents and fellows and medical students, and we present to them a phenotype, and they have to bring out a differential diagnosis, I would say that the genetic differential diagnosis should also probably be entertained there in addition to say infectious disease or rheumatological. I think there should always be a genetic differential diagnosis because there can always be a genetic diagnosis for the same phenotype. And then just recognizing that because I am mostly involved in diagnosing rare disorders. So recognizing that not only there are rare presentations of rare disorders, there are also extremely rare disorders with common presentation or their typical presentation that are missed. So for example, the patient I just mentioned of Gaucher disease is 51. That's the most common presentation of Gaucher disease, having thrombocytopenia and bleed, easy bleeding that has been going on and unexplained. That is the most common presentation, yet the patient wasn't diagnosed till age 51. So I think I would have to say that education around rare diseases and making them differential diagnosis of thrombocytopenia, Gaucher disease, this would not have been missed. Great. I work still in education a lot with the residents. And one of the things I'm trying to instill in them, whether they're working with me and I'm the, their facilitator, I don't like the word teacher, but or they're working with learners at other levels is to always ask the question, what else? You know, what else could this be? Okay, that's likely, but what else? Um, not that they need to do 50,000 things in the laundry list, but what else? And it gets to your point, Radhika, about this fact that we miss diagnoses. I mean, thinking about genetic conditions, because yes, there are lots of horses in the barn, but occasionally there is a zebra or a donkey or a something else. And, and being ready to say, when the pieces don't fit, think outside the box, you can look like a superstar. I've been involved in question writing nationally for many, many years. And I think one of the things and uh, that I'm working with here at, in Rochester is how do we start to get these national boards that write the exams to start to recognize? Because you know what? We start testing it. Somehow it's going to become a lot more important for people. And there are a paucity of questions, even about common conditions on our national licensing board. So uh, stay tuned, folks. I'm doing my darndest to get some of these things to start <laughs> happening. Today, we've been talking about preparing your practice for the increased use of genomics. 
I've had three wonderful guests today. Jenny Anderson, who is a licensed certified genetic counselor, Dr. Megan Alize, who's an associate professor of biomedical ethics with a joint appointment at OBGYN in the Women's Cancer Center, who works at our Jacksonville Mayo Clinic campus. And last but not least, Dr. Radhika Damija, who is a consultant in the Enterprise Department of Clinical Genomics at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona and practice chair, who is a joint appointment in neurology and actually the director of the Neurofibromatosis Clinic in Phoenix, which is a joint collaboration between Mayo Arizona campus and the Phoenix Children's Hospital. I would like to thank you all three for this very wonderful podcast that we've had today. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please subscribe and see your genes really do matter. Thank you all very much.